Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Andrew Newberg, who is Professor of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Thomas Jefferson University. He has been involved in a number of neuroimaging research projects, which have included the study of aging and dementia, epilepsy, and other neurological and psychiatric disorders. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So our conversation today is a bit different uh, from... <laughs> I'm used uh, to that. <laughs> what you typically uh, uh, do in neurology and, and diseases. And I want to set the context by starting with uh, your 2009 paper entitled Religious Experience, Psychology and Neurology. Uh, you say religion has served as a, a virtual influence on the lives of humans since the beginning of modern man and a plethora of practices incorporate people's ongoing quest to be closer to what they perceive as God. Religious experiences, particularly those that are transformative, have often been described as evolving, uh, sorry, as involving a, an alteration in the usual sense of consciousness. Um, I have to... Um, I have to say up front, Andrew, um, so, so that the audience knows my bias, I'm an agnostic. I'm, uh, I'm generally skeptical sure. of experiences. Uh, and so, so I, you know, I want to obviously um, get your perspective and, and uh, we have a number of different experiments here that we can talk about. Uh, but before we get into the details, could you sort of set the the context for the psychology and neurology of religious experiences? Sure. Well, you know, as you were just saying, I mean, obviously, if one looks at human history, uh, to me, there are kind of two main forces that have, have shaped it. One is the science and technology side, and the other is the, the religious and spiritual side. Um, and, you know, certainly, uh, again, you know, if you go back to even the earliest uh, evidences that we have of human activity in terms of burials with, you know, flowers and, and uh, shells and uh, weapons and things like that. 
there's this sense that there's something beyond what we just are biologically. And that obviously starts to lead us down this path towards something that seems uh, spiritual or religious. Um, you know, I, I, I would venture to guess that there has never been any civilization in human history that has arisen without some type of religious or spiritual elements to it. Um, many times the, the leaders of a given uh, civilization or, or uh, empire are considered to be, uh, you know, descended from gods or something like that. So, so there's certainly a lot for us to think about in the context of the impact that religion and spirituality has had on human history. So, you know, here we are now in the 21st century where we have brain scans and we have the ability to look at our biology in, in a completely different way. Um, to be able to look at these kinds of topics anew and try to look at them not just purely from a kind of philosophical or theological perspective, arguing over, you know, what does a sacred text say? What does the Bible say? What do the Upanishads say or whatever? But, uh, but what can we actually understand if we use a scientific lens to explore what religious experiences are? Can we try to understand them better in terms of what people even mean by them? Uh, what happens to people when they have them? Uh, and then you get into a lot of uh, fairly practical questions about how religious and spiritual attitudes and beliefs uh, affect a person's psychology uh, in terms of their emotions, their emotional set points. Um, do people turn to religion as a form of coping? Um, uh, to, does it make people more depressed, less depressed? You know, you can look at it, again, certainly from both the positive and negative, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, and then with it, the advent of brain imaging, the ability to try to explore this from an even a more of a neurological or a neurophysiological perspective in terms of what's really going on in the brain when people say, I've had some kind of spiritual experience and how does it, how does it affect the brain? Does it change the way the brain operates? Does it change the way uh, we look at reality, the way we think about things? Um, so, you know, whether whether you are a profoundly religious individual or a, a, a very staunch atheist, um, you, we have to acknowledge that religion has, has played an incredibly prominent role in human history. So taking a good look at it using science, I think, is has value to it. And again, you know, depending on where one decides to take it, there are some fascinating possibilities in terms of how we ultimately use this information, in my view, this this intersection of science and religion, um, which some people refer to as neurotheology as a, as a term, um, you know, we have the ability to, to look at this intersection to really help us understand who we are as human beings, both in terms of how we've gotten to where we are and, and where we ultimately are going as we go forward. And, and do we do we need religion and spirituality? Do we not? Do we, you know, how does it blend with science or, or shouldn't it? Um, so really fascinating, you know, every one of those questions um, there's a brain behind that question that's asking it and thinking about it in different ways. And that's what all of this is about, which is trying to understand how our brains engage all of these questions. Um, if you believe, if you don't believe, um, your brain is doing something to help you do that. And, uh, and then try to understand that becomes really relevant, I think, for understanding yeah. how, we, how we function as human beings. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating area. And like you say, uh, we have enough tools uh, and we can uh, apply some scientific process to it to at least ask those questions. We may not find uh, answers that are acceptable <laughs> to to everybody, right. uh, but it'll be interesting. Interesting um, data. Um, religion, as you say, continues to be a major force. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers. I would imagine 
of the 8.5 billion people that we have worldwide, at least two third of them uh, would be considered religious. Probably something like that. Yeah. And, and so it is meaningful uh, to a very large percentage of the population. And um, like you mentioned before, you know, I, I sometimes think about the, the origin or the sort of the incentives uh, for religions to, to start and, and, and flourish. Um, and I want to get your perspective on it. You know, one thing I, I think about is, you know, humans are given a very harsh constraint and that's lifespan. Right. And, you know, when you die, it seems so final. <laughs> and, <they> say? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I would imagine right from the beginning, um, you know, people uh, looked for some ways to extend that. And I wondered if religion started, uh, you know, uh, as a process to do that. Uh, do we have any date on that? Uh, you know, the actual evolutionary art, uh, origins of, of religion is is actually a very, uh, you know, intriguing debate. Um, uh, certain, you know, I, I think there are a number of possible uh, explanations that people have offered. And you mentioned one of them, which is to sort of help human beings deal with uh, the finality of death and what that means. Um, I think that you know, certainly when you get to some of the conceptual aspects of religion in terms of, you know, what happens to us as human beings and what happens to us when we die um, certainly becomes part of that. Uh, part of, you know, our argument and part of uh, the discussion in the, in the paper that you mentioned about religious experience is that we find that so many people have religious experiences or spiritual experiences uh, at various stages of their life, sometimes as a child, sometimes uh, as an adult. Um, sometimes they do coincide with, you know, near-death type of experiences, but often they can happen uh, in, in a variety of circumstances. And so those experiences in and of themselves also seem to have some influence on the origins of religion. I mean, it, people are, are feeling something, and then they're trying to interpret what that experience means and trying to define it and, and codify it in some kind of way. Uh, and and I'll even, you know, add, uh, so, you know, uh, several other uh Scholars have suggested that um, that religion ultimately provides a kind of uh, moral, uh, you know, structure for civilizations to arise. Uh, you know, provides a, uh, you know, a various approaches to creating a cohesive society, which may have an adaptive advantage for for human beings. And one of the the arguments that my late colleague Gene DeQuilly and I made, uh, actually, in one of our first books called "Why God Won't Go Away." Um, we said, you know, the brain has two very basic functions for us, um, and, and these are more kind of euphemistically speaking, that, you know, one of them is self-maintenance, we said, which is it, it helps us to survive. It helps us to get through the world and help us, helps us to stay alive and, and put off death as much as we can. And the other uh, aspect of our brain is what we call uh, self-transcendence. And what that means is that our brain has this remarkable ability to grow and adapt so that, you know, even though we're, you know, 50 years old or 80 years old, we're, you know, on one hand, we're still the same person we were when we were five years old, but what, but our brain has developed and evolved and changed, you know, within ourselves so that we constantly are able to adapt to the world, to, to change as we learn things and to move from one stage of life to the next. And the other, the yeah. first one, the self-maintenance, is about maintaining the self. 
And so the more we have an ability to understand and control and regulate ourselves and regulate our environment, the more likely we are to survive. So now, you know, if you then turn to what religions do for us, well, they also help with self-maintenance and self-transcendence. They help help us to maintain ourselves, as, as you were mentioning. They they give us some directionality in life. Um, they may help us to create uh, cohesive societies. They may provide us a sense of morals. Um, they they may help us to uh, quell some of what uh, some of my colleagues have referred to as ontological anxiety about what happens when we die. And and, and you know, if you do look at some of the ancient traditions, it it basically they give you kind of a framework by which to live your life, what to eat, when to, what to do, how to work, you know, how to select mates and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of self-maintenance elements within religion. And of course, religion in many ways um, provides the ultimate expression of self-transcendence, which is, can we, you know, as human beings get to something better than we are? Um, you know, and obviously religion sometimes, you know, we're often, we'll take that to something supernatural, but you know, if, you know, when you talk about various Buddhist or Hindu ideologies, um, it's not so not necessarily so much about a soul going up to heaven or something like that. But but can we kind of transcend ourselves to to get to a different kind of state of consciousness, a different state of being that is uh, you know that has has value to us? So you know, our argument was that as long as religion is trying to kind of help us with self maintenance and self transcendence, that the brain, you know, really kind of maps well onto what religions try to do for people. Um, so, you know, in the in the grand scheme, I think there are a number of possibilities out there that may help us to understand what could arguably be an evolutionary basis uh, of why religion is here and has such an influence on human beings. And of course, uh, to just throw out the one last possibility, at least at the moment, is that, you know, if you are a deeply religious individual, um, you would say, well, of course it's in the brain. You know, it would be kind of silly if there was God up in heaven and and us down here and we had no way of perceiving God. So um, no matter whether you are, again, religious or not, um, there are a lot of different explanations as to how and why religion may have gotten into the human brain, so to speak. Yeah. So, so I was wondering, Andrew, um, I don't know if it's even possible, but do we have any data on sort of the the, uh, the thing about the neurological basis? So do we have any data in sort of architecture, structure of the brain that shows some differences between religious people and non-religious people? Well, there, there have been some interesting studies um, that have looked at that question in, in a lot of different kinds of ways. Um, and uh, one of the things I talk about in the context of this field of neurotheology is that it's it's really a big jigsaw puzzle in a lot of ways, and there are a lot of pieces to that puzzle. So, for example, um, you know, here here's one answer to your question, which is that um, studies have shown that people who are engaged in religious practices, and specifically um, you know, more spiritually oriented practices like meditation or yoga. Um, that their brains are actually different than those people who are not doing those practices. And some of the data at the moment shows that certain areas of the brain, for example, the frontal cortices uh, are, are larger, are physically larger in those people who do these practices over and over again throughout their lifetime. Now, you know, does that have some implications for us? Well, you know, to a certain extent it does. We know that the frontal lobe is involved in our attentional network, so it helps us with concentration and attention. It also helps to regulate emotional responses by regulating the limbic system. So if you are a, an active meditator as part of a spiritual tradition, then you are likely to have a variety of changes that go on in the brain that help you to 
arguably function better. You may be able to concentrate better. You may be able to regulate emotional responses like anxiety and depression more effectively. Um, and in that context, uh, again, you know, there, there is some evidence for that. Um, we, uh, you know, a, another um, approach to asking that question has been uh, to look at how human beliefs form. And uh, a couple of interesting studies, one done by a very prominent um, atheist, Sam Harris, um, looked at religious and spiritual beliefs and compared them to beliefs about other things and found that they really weren't that much different in terms of brain function and brain structure. So it seems that whether you believe in uh, being, you know, if, if your political beliefs lean Democratic or Republican, um, those, those beliefs are in your brain in much the same way that religious and spiritual beliefs might be in your brain. They affect a lot of the same basic areas of your brain. Um, there's also some very interesting studies that have looked at brain disorders. Uh, so for example, a, a very interesting study of individuals who have, um, uh, who have uh, in injury to certain parts of the brain, particularly in the form of like brain tumors, uh, have found that those people who have brain tumors that are primarily in the parietal region are more likely to express feelings of self-transcendence. And, you know, that's kind of interesting, especially in the context of what I was just talking about, the sense of, of self-transcendence that people have. But also um, what that suggests is, is that, that those religious and spiritual beliefs may have something to do with the different parts of our brain and how they work and how they work when they are working normally versus how they work when they are working in a quote unquote abnormal way. So, um, so there are some really fat, you know, and then uh, some people have also done some more psychological studies designed to look at whether people who are religious, you know, address questions in the same way. Are they more likely to um, search for patterns in things uh, that don't really exist? Um, are they, you know, more likely to be critical thinkers or non-critical thinkers? And the data there is very interesting because, you know, some studies, especially those that have been done by individuals who are... Um, by individuals who are, uh, you know, who are not particularly religious, are sometimes trying to show that people who are religious aren't as intelligent or you know don't have critical thinking skills. And sometimes when they've given them certain logical problems, people who are religious don't do as well as non-religious individuals. But on the other hand, when studies are done to take into consideration the person's beliefs to begin with, meaning that they ask questions that are geared towards religion or spirituality, uh, other studies have shown that religious individuals can be every bit as, as rational or as critical in terms of their thought processes. And uh, if anybody has spent an evening with a theologian, they will find that they are incredibly adept at, at thinking and thinking through problems, even though they ultimately have some fundamental belief that kind of goes beyond just the pure critical thinking processes. So a lot of really interesting ways of trying to get at that question. And as you can see in my answer, there's a lot of really uh, <laughs> complex ways of looking at it. And we, we don't really have a defined answer at this point, especially because the last thing I'll say on it is that many studies have looked at kind of larger populations. So they may find that religious people are more likely to have, you know, higher, you know, larger frontal lobes or something like that. But that doesn't mean that everyone who's religious is that way. And it doesn't mean that everyone who's atheist is, is another way. Um, there are, there are many factors that get into the equation in terms of why someone ultimately decides to believe things the way they do.
Right. Yeah. No, I, I was just thinking there had to be some selection advantages. So if, if religion acted as sort of a stress reducer, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, right from the beginning, uh, it would have acted as as a sort of selection um, advantage. And uh, evolutionarily, as you said before, we don't see many cultures uh, without religion. Um, and even now, we don't see many cultures <laughs> without yeah, religion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned yoga and meditation, but but I wondered, um, both yoga and meditation, I think, have become sort of commercialized Correct. and, you know, taken out of the religious context anymore. It's more in the area of exercise. Right. Well, uh, absolutely. So They've been secularized and um, and made more accessible to people, which, you know, on one hand is great. You know, it's wonderful that lots of people can do yoga or do meditation and mindfulness and other types of practices that help them to reduce their stress or help them to feel better. Um, but obviously a lot of them grew out of some type of spiritual tradition and there is that underlying piece to it uh, about working towards something uh, some kind of enlightenment state or or something along those lines and i saw a paper andrew uh, i don't know if this is this is really peer reviewed or real data but uh, um, claiming that there is some structural differences between liberals and conservatives in the us right. for example and you, you touched on that, and it, it sort of goes in the same direction, right? Um, I also wondered, uh, I don't have any data on this, but I, I, I uh, speculate that there, there has to be some sort of negative correlation, strong negative correlation between academics and and religious beliefs. Uh, do we, have you seen any data? Well, on we that? certainly know that, you know, as a, as a group, people who are in academia tend to be less religious. Um, uh, so, you know, that certainly seems to be the case. The question then becomes is why, you know, what are the elements behind that that um, that lead to that? And, you know, you know, going uh, this this line of discussion about evolution is a very interesting one because you know, we always have to remember that part of what guides evolution is the environment. And so, you know, how, what are what are what is influencing the genetics and, and, and the adaptability that you're seeing? So, for example, you know, like a really interesting example in the United States which has, you know, historically been very pro-religious, being a religious person has generally been a pretty good thing. And so a lot of research studies, certainly, you know, going back into the 1960s and 70s, showed that those people who are religious tend to, to do better than people who are non-religious. But those same data yeah. do not hold in um, countries or, or cultures where religion is not highly, value, highly valued. So for example, in communist countries like the Soviet Union, uh, when that was there or in China, being a religious person comes with a lot of extra stressors and, try, you know, you're, you're trying to hold on to a religion uh, in the face of something that is is not very well respected and, and may even get you into trouble. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, where does it become adaptive or not adaptive and how that may be influenced in terms of the environment itself um, and whether that has something to do with academics uh, as well. You know, uh, we don't know for sure. It's always a challenge to try to figure out, you know, all those different pieces that go into influencing things. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, trying to think about uh, whether or not it is adaptive and how it is adaptive and when it is adaptive uh, are interesting questions that, um, that certainly, you know, this to me is, is a very important area where neurotheology itself as a field, you know, looking at this intersection between understanding the brain and religion might be really helpful 
at trying to sort of tease out where those differences are and, and try to tease out what, you know, where those evolutionary forces may, may be playing a role in terms of um, uh, the, the religious beliefs of a given individual or a given group of individuals. Yeah, and that is clearly, you know, some sort of a club effect or subscription effect. Uh, when you hit, a, you know, a, a critical size, you are forced to conform. Mm -hmm. uh, so like you said, in, in um, I don't know China that well, but uh, being religious in China may be a, <laughs> may be right. a difficult thing. You don't have, uh, you know, too many people, right? So, but um, just to the south in India, if you're not religious, you are sort right, of right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and again, you know, yeah. what is good is is also up up for grabs in terms of you know how we think about this. So you know, you, you had mentioned like the liberal versus conservative brain, um, and I have seen some data starting to come out about that. And you know, one of the one of the statements that I've seen is that you know areas like the amygdala, one of the main areas that's involved in like fear response, tends to be kind of more active and larger in in uh, in conservatives, and the idea that they're sort of like afraid of change and afraid of things. Now, that could be a good thing or a bad thing depending on the environment. If if people really are you know. Uh, coming after you and trying to, you know, create problems for you, then being afraid of that is protective. If you're living in a world where that level of fear becomes excessive and prevents you from engaging the world effectively and, and being part of a larger community, then it becomes negative and detrimental. And so, um, you know, it, it, I, and the, I guess the take-home point there is that it's, you know, even though people who are religious um, may see the world differently, whether that is better or worse is is also not really clear. And there can be times where it's great to be able to uh, be really critical about things. Um, there's times where it's great to be very realistic about things. There's times where it's great to be optimistic and unrealistic about things. Um, you know, if, if all of us were pessimistic and and critical about everything, then you know the Wright brothers would never have created an airplane, and we would have never gone to the moon. And you know, because people have said that's ridiculous, you can't do that. You know, so so somebody had to say, let's go for it. And um, and so you know, depending on the circumstances, everyone has to sort of think about what are the approaches that work best for them and in the context of the environment that they're in. Yeah, and the phrase, you know, the only the paranoid survives <laughs> um, what was clearly useful 50,000 years ago in the African savanna, right? So, so, so I think in some sense, the context Absolutely. matters a lot. And uh, we are given conditions now that is sort of an accumulation of all the selection advantages. And as you said, based on the environment that existed. Um, but now we are in a position that is that is very different from right. what used to be. That makes it very interesting. I want to go into one of your recent papers uh, entitled The Noetic Quality, a Multi-Method Exploratory Study. You say religious, spiritual and mystical experiences RSMEs are often described as having noetic quality or the compelling sense that the experience right. feels real. Uh, so you have a you have a study here, seven hundred or so participants. You want to do, uh, describe a bit um, what sure. exactly you mentioned? Um, well, the study really came out of a, a larger kind of um, exploration of the meaning of these experiences, and when you you know we we have always kind of gathered from our discussions with other people informally that when people have an intense spiritual or mystical kind of experience 
there's one, you know, there are, there are many interesting qualities about it, but one of them in particular um, has to do with how real they feel. Because, you know, it is interesting when you talk to somebody who, for example, is an atheist, will, will kind of not understand uh, the meaning of what it, somebody who says, I had a religious experience because they didn't have that experience. So, um, which is, you know, completely understandable. Um, for the person who has had that experience, they, you know, they perceive it to be incredibly real. And that in and of itself is quite a fascinating thing because, uh, you know, many times we all have this kind of um, uh, ability to understand this concept. You know, all, all of us have had dreams at one point or another. And no matter how real a dream feels, when you wake up from the dream, you typically relegate that to an inferior perspective of reality. You say that was just a dream. And if something was chasing you or whatever was going on, um, you kind of know that that isn't the real reality. And now, and now you're resting and you're, you know, you're, you're living within the everyday reality as I'll call it, um, which is just, you know, getting up to work and going to jobs and, and, you know, having a family and all that. So what's fascinating is, is that when people have these kinds of religious experiences, uh, you know, on one hand, they kind of have this dreamlike quality to them. However, when they no longer have yeah. the experience, what they, they don't say that was less real. In fact, oddly enough, they actually think that it was more real than our everyday reality experience. So this raises some interesting questions for us on a very philosophical level, an epistemological level, about how we as human beings decide to uh, identify something as being real or not. And so, you know, the, the study that you mentioned um, was actually derived from a, an online survey that we did where we asked people to describe their most intense spiritual experiences. And we actually, uh, ultimately we had about, uh, we had about 2000 people who provided some kind of information about them. And, uh, you know, depending on uh, how we were looking at the data, uh, you know, I think in, in the paper that you mentioned, we got down to about 700 people where we had like a complete set of, uh, of information for that particular question that we were looking at. Um, and when we asked them about the realness of the experience, again, you know, it just supported what we kind of already had assumed that um, if you ask people how how real did it feel from less real to more real, uh, you know, 90% of people or more said that it felt more real than our everyday reality experiences. And I think, you know, when you do uh, get into this more philosophical questioning about the nature of reality and how human beings perceive that reality, this raises some very problematic issues for us because, you know, ultimately, how do we know anything that we think about the world is real? Um, you know, everything that we think about the world comes into us through our senses. And we hope that our visual and auditory senses and the ways we hear things and see things um, is accurate. So if I look outside and I see an automobile, um, hopefully there's really an automobile there. Uh, I could have schizophrenia and it could be a pure hallucination. And how would I differentiate that? So, uh, you know, what do we do when somebody says, you know what, that experience of reality that took me to a transcendent level and was something that uh, enabled me to see the world in a different kind of way, that's really the real reality. It's a, you know, common in, in Buddhist uh, kind of thought process of, you know, sometimes people go to as far as saying that this is an illusion. Um, but, you know, forgetting even that, you know, that degree of a statement, um, the notion that there's some sort of more deeper fundamental reality 
is quite fascinating. Even in science, we understand that there is a deeper fundamental reality than the human world. There are atoms and molecules that we don't see, and they are the basis of everything that we do. But we also wouldn't say that, you know, it was, uh, you know, my carbon atoms that decided to go to the grocery store and get some milk. Um, we would say, I went to the grocery store to get some milk. Uh, and why I decided to get milk instead of orange juice, you know, ultimately those are my carbon atoms and nitrogen atoms all deciding to do that in some way. But, uh, you know, it's, it's also me as a person. So it raises some really fascinating philosophical and scientific questions. And that's why, I, you know, to me, I keep coming back to this neurotheology concept of, I don't know if we're going to answer those questions by purely looking at this from a scientific perspective. I don't think we're going to get to it purely by looking at it from a more religious or spiritual perspective. But maybe if we kind of combine these two perspectives, maybe we will get to an answer that we have never been able to get to before. I, I, I can't guarantee that, obviously, but uh, I, I kind of hope that that may be the possibility that we blend our scientific investigation of these questions with, with our qualitative and subjective, our consciousness, if you will, uh, experiences like that. And, uh, and hopefully we will get to some deeper answers, but until then we, we've got to keep asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that situation could be worse, <laughs> Andrew. There is a fringe of technology that says we are living in yeah, a simulation. Yeah. <laughs> right. The talk well, and then, you know, the famous movie, the matrix yeah. and, you know, where, where is reality? And, uh, but, you know, but, but look, I mean, we, we wrote a book called Why We Believe What We Believe, and we talk about, you know, our sensations and how we get things from the outside world and our thoughts and our emotions as all influencing our beliefs. And we talk about all the studies that show how uh, malleable we are, how influenceable we are, uh, and how we can be fooled in so many different ways uh, that it really, you know, the, the, it really does make you have to challenge the things that you think about the world, whether it's a, a moral thought or a political thought or a religious or spiritual thought. You know, why do we, you know, why do liberals think the way they do? Why do conservatives think the way they do? Um, and how do either of them know that they're looking at the world the right way? You know, how do either any of us know what the president of the United States is really doing right now or really thinking about right now? Um, uh, none of us do. And and we have we have access to such a small percentage of the universe you know, probably on the order, I, I try to calculate at one point, like 10 to the minus 57th percent uh, is what we have access to of the entire universe. So how do we ever think that we know something about what's going on out there? It's, uh, it's remarkable that our brain helps us to see the world in some kind of consistent way and uh, and convinces us that, that we actually do know the world and what's going on in it. So uh, uh, it's some fascinating issues yeah. for us to think about. Yeah, I, I want to touch on one yeah. thing in the paper, Andrew. So uh, you mentioned this already. A majority of participants, close to 70%, reported their experience, their RSMEs, which is religious, spiritual, and mystical experiences, felt more real than their usual sense of reality. So that that is one yeah. interesting thing to think about. Uh, but you say participants who reported experiences as feeling more real used more language referring to connection, mm. a greater whole, and, and certainty, things like love, or and everything, and, and fewer first-person pronouns, uh, cognitive processes, and, uh, and things like that, I, me, think, right. probably, and so on. And so, so that, that tells me that, you know, we, we talked a bit of the, about the hardware, but there is a you know, neurology perspective, there's a little bit of a difference there. 
but this also tells me that the, the process of thinking uh, also appears That's to be right. slightly yeah. different. Yeah. You know, we uh, yeah. we published a book called um, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, which kind of addresses your question very directly, that um, there are several specific elements of these kinds of experiences, and, and they really are different ways of thinking, as you said. Um, so, you know, you brought up one of the most important ones, which is the sense of connection, a sense of oneness, unity, you know, whatever, uh, however you want to define that. And that is this... Uh, characteristic of these experiences, which is fundamentally different. I mean, people, you know, it, it, it's always gets said so often in, in just kind of common language, you know, people felt at one with, you know, the universe or one with humanity or, or whatever, uh, and uh, or one with God, if you're a religious individual. Um, and, and that sense of being at one with something, at being connected to something um, is a very profound experience for these individuals. And that and it also feels incredibly real. So, you know, again, it gets back to our earlier point that, you know, normally we kind of go through our everyday world as feeling fairly separate from everything out there. And, you know, it, it's me and you, and it's me and the car, and it's me and, you know, uh, another person. Whereas in these experiences, it is much more of a oneness, of a connectedness, of an interconnectedness. And that is part of what feels more real. So that when people, no longer have that experience, they say, you know, well, in that reality, we are all deeply connected. And we are able through the studies that we, the brain scan studies we've done to look at what's going on in different parts of our brain. We've mentioned a little bit already, you know, like frontal lobes and, and the limbic system. The limbic system is very involved in a lot of the emotional elements. You mentioned awe for a moment. Um, but the parietal lobe in particular is an area that we've looked a lot at, which tends to bring in our sensory information and helps us to construct our spatial representation of ourself in the world around us. And we hypothesize that during these experiences, and we you know, observe this during practices like meditation and prayer, that the parietal lobe actually kind of shuts down and we see decreased metabolism or blood flow in these areas on, on brain scans. So if this area normally turns on to give us our sense of self and differentiate that self from the world, if it starts, if this area starts to shut down, we lose our sense of self and we lose that differentiation between ourself and the world. And if people have an intense enough experience, it appears that they can feel, you know, as if almost their entire self, their entire ego self goes away and they perceive this incredible sense of yeah. oneness that is incredibly real. So it, it's quite fascinating for us to think about what that means in terms of where the real reality is. It also seems to me, Andrew, that uh, the experience requires certain conditions, and one of them is the desire to have the experience. Um, and, and without that, I wonder if you will have them, right? So are we, you know, if, if you take people and put them into two buckets, you know, in, in one bucket are people who, who don't really have a desire, they're already rejected the possibility of an experience. Another bucket, you have people who already, you know, sort of expecting right. that experience. Well, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point too. And, and we've talked about this in some of our other works about beliefs. Um, certainly the prevailing belief system that you have is going to affect your ability to even have the experience or to interpret that experience after the fact. Um, so, for example, um, you know, you mentioned people who are not open to those experiences. Um, you know, what would what would happen to them? Now, interestingly, there are examples of people 
who uh, are, I, in fact, I, I know a number of people who are uh, atheists who have had, you know, like a near-death experience and has, you know, all the full-blown elements of it. And to them, ultimately, their conclusion was that was my brain dying. You know, that was my, or that was my, that was all in my brain. Um, people may have a drug-induced experience, a psychedelic experience, and it's just my brain. Um, and, and which is, you know, again, totally appropriate and reasonable. Um, uh, and and I, I remember one time I had kind of a funny interchange with a, a friend of mine who is, is is very atheist in his thinking. And he said, look, if, if God existed, why doesn't God just come down, shake my hand and say, you know, I'm here and, and then I'll believe. <laughs> and I said, no, you wouldn't. You would check yourself into a mental institution <laughs> because your belief system initially is so strong that, you know, it's like the old, uh, you know, oh, God movies or whatever, where it, it really becomes hard to, to ever accept that that's what's going on. On the other hand, as you mentioned, there are people who are very open to these kinds of experiences and may be more likely to have them. Now, one of the things that was interesting in our uh, larger database that we had is that there are people who do just seem to literally, you know, get hit by these experiences. They're not looking for them. They're not, you know, in any kind of weird situation, a near-death experience or anything like that. They do happen. But I agree with you that, you know, they are certainly far more likely to happen when people are purposely trying to uh, work towards them and when they have an underlying uh, spiritual or, or religious perspective that they're that they're looking at. Although again, even in those individuals, a lot of times the experience itself is so radically different from anything that they've believed in the past um, that sometimes it's actually quite challenging for them to even know what to do with that experience. And almost it can become a negative for them uh, even when the experience is so positive uh, right. that they have trouble integrating it into their prevailing belief system, or maybe they go to like a clergy member or family member who kind of, you know, dismisses them. Um, and so uh, there, there's some really interesting pieces to all this. And again, you know, I'll throw in the neurotheology pieces. Well, what is the difference? You know, are, is, are there certain brain changes that we have no choice but to accept as a certain level of reality? Or are we always able to you know, alter the way in which we think and modify the ways in which we interpret whatever experiences we have. And uh, I don't know, but it's a fascinating question. Yeah. Uh, don't we see sort of the same uh, process in psychedelics, you know, that those who can take advantage of it uh, and those who cannot um, seem sort of, you know, willing and not willing as sort of the, the well, primary Well, yeah, I, you know, so part of the interesting thing about that is that, uh, you know, in the studies that have been done looking at psychedelics, um, well, certainly, you know, the early data suggests that many of the people, a large, large majority of people who, who are given them specifically as part of research studies um, will report very intense spiritual experiences. Um, I haven't seen the data uh, that you're specifically asking about, about, you know, would if you tried this on atheists and so forth, you know, how that would, would change their ultimate yeah. interpretation of those experiences. But uh, certainly they provide very compelling and very intense experiences that are very powerful for the people who have them. They can be transformative as well, which is a whole other important point about all these experiences. Um, but uh, but let me just say one flip side of this, which is that, you know, in our very westernized way of looking at things, we say, OK, you know, the person took psilocybin, took ma magic mushrooms or whatever, and they had an experience. So clearly yeah. the experience was produced by the drug. And again, totally makes sense from a scientific perspective. Um, however, 
you know, there is another perspective and, you know, one could, you know, have some very fascinating arguments <laughs> over this. Um, but for a shaman who takes a magic right. mushroom and then has a spiritual experience, they don't, they don't view that as, as uh, inauthentic or artificial. They view that as uh, the, the doorway, if you will, into looking at the world in a different kind of way and, and into a more real kind of way. And the best analogy that I always kind of uh, yeah. say to people is, you know, I, I wear glasses. So when I wake up in the morning, the world is a very blurry place. And then I put my glasses on and I see the world clearly. Now, the world didn't change and I didn't change, but, you know, I just, I see the world differently because I've modified the way in which I perceive the world. So who is to say that when you rev up a brain on serotonin and dopamine and so forth, that you're actually now able to see the world and whatever, you know, sensory stimuli and so forth um, in the right way, instead of the way in which we currently see it. Because clearly we know that we don't see, you know, 90% of what's going on around us. We only see the visual light spectrum and there's all kinds of radio waves and, and other light waves that are coming in, x-rays and ultraviolet and infrared and all that. We don't see any of that stuff. So, you know, it doesn't mean that doesn't exist, but what yeah. would happen if you could somehow put on glasses in a way that would help you to see the world differently? Um, so who's to say that uh, a drug-induced state doesn't somehow connect you to a world in a different kind of way? Um, you know, again, it's, it's a really intriguing scientific as well as philosophical question. And part of what I always just try to let people know is that they have to be careful about the biases that they bring in to the initial discussion. Um, and we all or always have to be careful about whatever conclusions we draw from whatever research studies that we're looking at. So, um, you know, it... I'm not here to say that you know psychedelics do get you to that different state of the world, um, or it is just a brain phenomena. But you know, those are some interesting possibilities for us to talk about. Yeah, yeah. We'll take a we'll take a quick break, uh, Andrew. When we come back, we'll talk uh, talk about that exactly whether dopamine or serotonin, those types of um, drugs, sounds good, could have an impact. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, uh, Andrew. You know we are talking about religious, spiritual, and mystical experiences (RSMEs) and how real they could be for some people, and uh, maybe not so real for others. Um, but it depends very much on um, the, the person, their background, and the way that they think. Uh, could be other other aspects to it. You have a study here: effect of a one-week spiritual retreat on dopamine and serotonin transporter binding, a preliminary study. So, um, you know, this is a situation where you, you, you actually have an experiment running and then you're measuring what that experiment did in, in, these, um, in these two things, right? Correct. So, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so what did you find? Oh, sure. Um, sorry, I wasn't sure if you were going to ask something else. Um, so, uh, you know, what we did was, uh, as you said, we sent people through a, a very intensive spiritual retreat program. 
Um, it was actually a Christian-based program uh, derived from what are referred to as the spiritual exercises uh, of St. Ignatius, who is the founder of the Jesuit movement in Christianity. Um, and there's a, actually there's a, a center that's near where we are in, Phil in the Philadelphia area. Uh, so we would send people to there for a, a week-long program. Um, it involves a lot of contemplation, prayer. Um, uh, most of it is done in silence. There is uh, a lot of, uh, however, there are times where they speak with a, a kind of spiritual um, uh, advisor, if you will, and uh, reflect on a lot of aspects of their own life and their own beliefs. Um, so it's a pretty immersive kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And what we did was we scanned their brain before and after. And as you said, uh, we did several different scans, but one of the ones that we looked at were changes that occur in the dopamine and serotonin system. And so we in, uh, actually did a kind of scan called a SPECT scan that involves injecting a small amount of a radioactive tracer that actually goes to um, the serotonin and the dopamine transporters, which are receptors in the brain that take up excess serotonin and dopamine um, after a synaptic transmission. And the idea is, is that it gives you a sense as to kind of where, where your serotonin and dopamine systems are in terms of how much they're acting or, or what they're doing. So uh, we actually found something that was quite intriguing to me and not what I expected to see uh, per se. Uh, there have been some studies that have shown, for example, that meditation practices cause a release of dopamine in the brain. And I had actually originally hypothesized that uh, if you have excess dopamine, then typically you would have an upregulation of the dopamine transporter because it's trying to remove some of the excess dopamine from, from the area, uh, from yeah. the synapse. So, uh, however, we saw the opposite. Um, over the week-long retreat, when we scanned people when they came out of the retreat, their dopamine transporter activity, their dopamine transporter binding was lower. Now, this is in it, you know, we can have some interesting scientific uh, debates about that and trying to figure out exactly what might be going on. But I think the most likely explanation of that is that as a result of these practices, um, that it actually did change the way this dopamine transporter was functioning and that there was less of it. Now, what would that mean? Well, uh, you know, one possibility is that there's less and less dopamine in their system, and, and that is possible, although, again, that seems a little unlikely because other studies have suggested that it goes up. Yeah. But the other possibility is that as you downregulate the, uh, or as you, as you decrease, I should say, uh, the dopamine transporter, what that means is, is that every time you have a dopaminergic release, you're going to have a stronger response by the postsynaptic receptors. Uh, to, a, to a large extent, this is you know, kind of analogous to what happens when you take cocaine. Cocaine actually blocks the dopamine transporter, and so suddenly you get this flood of dopamine in the brain, and that is what causes the high, the euphoria. So, yeah, higher high reward, right? Higher sensations, higher sensation of reward. Yeah, exa exactly. It's part of the reward system of the brain. Yeah. Exactly. So, so arguably speaking, then, if they have a, a decrease in transporter binding um, and decrease in the dopamine transporter, then every time they have a release of the dopamine, it actually would sort of pre be perceived as more and more strongly. And I think this is an important point also, because when you do think about these mystical experiences, spiritual experiences, there's a differentiation between experiences and practices. So just doing meditation or prayer by itself is not inherently a religious experience. The religious yeah. experience or the spiritual experience comes because you are doing that practice. 
And so the practice itself may alter the way the brain responds to dopamine in such a way that at some point when you kind of finally do have this incredible release of dopamine for whatever reason, um, that you do have this very intensive experience. And then again, we, we saw the same kind of response in the serotonin transporter. And that also makes sense because as we were talking about a little earlier, the psychedelic drugs typically are involved in high levels of serotonin. So maybe this kind of artificially, uh, I don't say artificially, but uh, um, uh, you know, sort of mechanistically winds up resulting in higher responses to serotonin in the brain, almost on a more natural level, I should say, than the artificial way that you get with a drug. Uh, so, you know, this to me is, is very interesting. Um, it gives us at least our first window into what's going on in the brain when people are doing these practices. And we can ask kind of the next question, which is, well, what would happen if you were, you know, a nun or a monk who are doing these practices and, and doing these kinds of programs, uh, you know, for hours a day for a lifetime and how that will change the way your brain operates? Yeah, let me let me ask you a loaded question. Okay. Uh, so... If, if this mechanism is right, you would find addiction to spiritual retreats, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we see, you know, this sort of mass hysteria uh, sometimes in, in different parts of the world. Yeah. That would actually get uh, addicted to retreats, I would imagine. Well, you know, th there's, there's some, um, you know, the, the discussion about addictions and spirituality, um, it, is, is, is really something that is very interesting. Um, you know, as you said, I mean, certainly people can become attached to religious traditions or, or even cult-like behavior, uh, which has a lot of elements that are overlapping. And of course, the flip of this is that uh, a number of therapeutic interventions, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, um, really invoke a kind of spiritual elements to them. They talk about believing in a higher power and surrendering yourself to that higher power. Uh, these programs, which have you know, generally been, you know, as successful certainly as, as anything uh, in helping people through addictions, uh, you know, one of the questions is, well, are they kind of transferring that addiction from one thing to another? Uh, is there something physiologically going on that's similar? Um, you know, we don't we don't have a, a defined answer yet, but we certainly know that religious and spiritual beliefs can often be uh, a powerful mechanism by which people can get away from addictions. And, uh, you know, you see this in, in rehabilitated criminals and so forth. You know, they become deeply religious uh, in prison or something like that. So, um, uh, you know, oftentimes when people hit that proverbial rock bottom, they come out of it with a very intense spiritual uh, belief system and and spiritual experiences that transform the way they they act and change the way they act so that they no longer have the addictive uh, elements of that person you know at least what they were doing before so there, there are yeah. some really interesting uh, aspects about this interrelationship and again another another important area for neurotheology to look at yeah i can i can you know really see that the substance addiction part of it but couldn't we also say that, you know, this mechanism that you described, uh, both in uh, dopamine as well as the serotonin systems, is sort of behavior addiction that is happening in the brain, that somebody who is getting that high from a spiritual retreat uh, would tend to do that more often than otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I think, you know, it, it's not unreasonable to, to look at it in that kind of context. Um, you know, when people become deeply religious, uh, 
you know, it, it is, it, it can look a lot like an addiction depending on the circumstances. And it, it raises another uh, point about, um, you know, neurotheology and thinking about these kinds of topics, which is how do we define what is pathological and how do we define what is normal? So if you, um, you know, I mean, I can ask, I could ask you the same question, not you, but I could ask one the same question about playing a musical instrument, uh, playing yeah. sports. Uh, you know, there are people who play the violin hours and hours a day, and clearly it gives them some reward, and they become almost addicted to doing it. People can become addicted to uh, exercise and so forth. So, but those may be good addictions, so to speak. Um, yeah. And so, uh, if somebody does become a deeply religious individual, if it is something that leads them down a path that enables them to have an effective life, uh, have a wonderful marriage, raise great children, um, you know, be productive in society, then that's a good thing. Um, if, on the other hand, uh, it is an addiction that leads them to join some cults uh, with, you know, 30 other people um, and they commit violence or they they kill themselves or whatever, you know, then obviously that's a very negative thing. So. Um, uh, it, it gets into a very um, kind of a, a bit of a quagmire, if you will, about well, what is normal exactly? You know, what what amount of religious or spiritual beliefs are normal or not normal? Um, what amount of of any kind of beliefs are normal or not normal? And, and looking at the political realm uh, of today, you know, how much anxiety and stress and depression on both sides. Uh, arises because of the intensity of the beliefs and the desire to keep looking at the same pieces of information and going to the same sources. And, uh, you know, uh, there, there, you know, there are some, some really, um, uh, there, there, there are some, certainly some parallels uh, between all of these different things. And, and this to me is an area for us to kind of tease this out, which is, um, you know, where, you know, can we make that statement that religion is really, you know, has an element of addiction to it? Is that okay? What does that mean? Um, is it different than, you know, other types of addiction? Um, and and should it even be considered an addiction? You know, so uh, there there are a lot of, um, you know, fascinating problems that we have to think about uh, in terms of how we define these ideas and how we decide to define, you know, what normal is and what abnormal is uh, that um, that that we need to look at, and then and then look at what's going on in the brain itself uh, in terms of how that uh, how that all plays out. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely an interesting point. So, you know, one could argue that any activity done over and over again uh, may result in this issue that we generally call addiction. And, and and so the question then, Andrew, would be from a therapeutic intervention perspective, you know, anytime we see excess dopamine in the brain uh, from an activity, it, it's sort of indicating that uh, let me make a statement. You can cut okay. it. <laughs> is it indicating that you're overdoing it? Well, I don't. You know, I, I don't necessarily think that it would, it is overdoing it. Um, I think that um, it, uh, again, I, I think it, you know, one always has to kind of look at it in context and whether or not yeah. um, you know all any activity, as you said, leads to something positive for an individual or ultimately leads them down a negative path. And um, you know, so many great artists um, are are incredibly addicted, if that's the word where you're going with, you know, to to their yeah. to their art, um, whether it's music or, or painting. 
Um, and, and of course, uh, some of the greatest uh, creative people have been highly tormented because of their, uh, you know, how they engage their, their practice and how they engage it to the exclusion of many other things. So, uh, but does that make them abnormal? You know, was Van Gogh uh, abnormal or not? Uh, it was Mozart abnormal or, or not? Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. I mean, you can kind of argue it both ways. <laughs> so, um, or Einstein. Or Einstein, yeah. And and yeah. another interesting point about this, especially when it comes to some of the other points that we've talked about, is that if you're going to get into the study of religious and spiritual beliefs and attitudes and experiences, um, you know, do you do you look at those individuals who are at the you know quote unquote highest level? You know, do we want to try to find the Mother Teresas? Do we want to find the Dalai Lamas and study them like we would study Mozart if we want to study music? Or do we look at the whole population of people and look at the range of people from very religious to very atheistic? Um, and, and where are all the similarities and differences across that continuum? Just like if we wanted to study music, do we get the people who are like, you know, really nice musicians to those people who are tone deaf? Um, you know, with, when we look at the overall normal population, that tells us a lot about what music is and how it intersects with the human brain. But it's also not exactly the same thing as studying Mozart's and, and Beethoven's brain. Um, you know, these are people who have music at a whole other level than the rest of us. And, um, and there's always, you know, in, in every uh, domain of human uh, activity, you know, there's always the athletes and the musicians and the artists and so forth that are just different from everybody else. And, uh, you know, is it just the normal along a continuum and they just happen to be on the far end of the continuum? Or is there some sort of quantum leap, if you will, that means it takes a person to a completely other level of, of thinking about things? And, and again, is that is that the right way or the wrong way of thinking? I mean, uh, is, is, is Mozart's brain what we should strive for, you know, is that, is that the enlightenment that we should strive for? I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting, interesting area. I want to, I want to finish up with uh, one of your other papers, uh, Andrew, the, the varieties of self-transcendent experience, um, various forms of self loss you say have been described as aspects of mental illness, uh, but might self loss also be related to mental health you ask? Um, and so, so, so you have sort of detailed different uh, different experiences here. Uh, you want to very quickly uh, sort of summarize what they are? Um, well, you know, I mean, certainly um, uh, there are you know so many aspects of what are called you know self transcendent experiences, and um, uh, there are ways. You know, to me, there's really, and we've kind of touched on this at various points. Um, that there's sort of this whole continuum uh, of these experiences. You know, we go from uh, where we are in our everyday world to a feeling of love with with a family member to you know getting into these uh, religious and spiritual experiences that have a profound sense of connectedness or oneness to a group or to uh, you know to God or to the universe. And um, and of course, some of the you know even some of the great scientists have had experiences of these kinds of self-transcendent experiences being connected to the scientific world, the physical world in a way that we recognize that we're all deeply interconnected. So, um, you know, that these are some of the questions that we were looking at. This goes back to uh, our survey of people's experiences. And um, and again, you know, when, when one gets beyond 
the ego self, um, these experiences become uh, you know, quite intense and become uh, quite meaningful for the individual. And there, there do seem to be uh, different types, if you will. So, you know, we started to look into, can we differentiate, um, you know, a, a God experience from, uh, you know, feeling connected to the universe, feeling, uh, and how does that compare to a feeling of just oneness of all things? Um, so there are a lot of different kinds of experiences that can be part of a larger continuum. And I think, again, trying to understand them, trying to understand how they affect the brain in different ways, how they affect the person in different ways, and and what their meaning is in terms of each person's life. Uh, these are all the kinds of questions that we can start to ask. Yeah, you, you mentioned um, mindfulness, flow, peak experiences. Um, I, 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 I knew mindfulness, but uh, do, you, do you want to just give a quick definition of what you mean by mindfulness, flow, and peak experience? So, well, mindfulness tends to be more um, uh, of a, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the definition of mindfulness, so to speak, is um, to just be sort of presently aware uh, of what's going on. So wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, you're just aware of it in that present moment. Um, ideally, uh, you are supposed to be non-judgmental about that. So you're just experiencing the world. Um, and that's really what mindfulness is. Uh, flow experiences, uh, there's a, a pretty well-known uh, scholar named Chikson Mahai, who, a very tough word to, uh, name to spell. Um, and you know, he talks a lot about flow experiences that, um, that basically, uh, you know, in these, this is where like so much information is being processed that you just feel like, the world is sort of flowing through you. Um, so it's a little yeah. different than mindfulness in that regard. And they tend to occur a little bit more often in very intensive uh, types of um, uh, states. You know, uh, people talk about this in, um, in uh, uh, surfing, um, you know, uh, jet pilots and things like that who are just processing millions of pieces of information moment by moment. And they have that kind of flow yeah. experience. And then, and then you have, uh, you know, peak experiences which also can be defined as just very, very intense experiences that sometimes can have an element of mindfulness, an element of flow, uh, but they, they can be, you know, there could be other elements to them. Um, and, and this is actually, you know, even touching on a larger question in neurotheology, which is, um, you know, how do we use any of these words and how do we compare the use of these words in those people who are having these experiences? If somebody says, I felt a feeling of flow, I felt God, I felt energy, I felt a force. Um, are, they, are, they, are they the same experiences using different words or are they fundamentally different kinds of experiences? And this is part of what we're trying to unwrap as we look at the descriptions and also as, when we look at what's going on in the brain itself. Yeah, yeah, so, so from my bias, uh, Andrew, I'm thinking that these are all tools that might allow people to process information differently and it might you know it turn out to be sort of necessary condition for survival in the future because we're moving into you know a team where you have much much higher amount of information and most of it is not going to be that useful to right. you eventually and so you know how do you discard information how do you focus on the most important aspects and and really, you know, sort of live through 
time in the most optimum fashion, right? All these sound like tools that people could utilize. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. Um, you know, as, as, as you said, as we get to more and more information and, and who knows where we will ultimately end up with our uh, kind of blending of our brain and our technology and, and will we someday have, you know, uh, chips that'll be, you know, instead of going to our phone, we'll just blink our eyes and suddenly, you know, we're, we're, we're searching for, you know, uh, a good restaurant or something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, being able to process all of that information in different ways uh, can be very, very important. And, and again, it gets back to one of the points I made earlier on, which is that the ultimate goal of so many of the spiritual traditions, and, and I think of science itself, is, is helping humanity get beyond where we are today to something bigger and better. And, um, and whether that is a, a scientific enlightenment, a spiritual enlightenment, whatever that means, um, you know, or some combination of those two, uh, I, I think there, there are really some, some wonderful opportunities for us to figure out the most effective ways of helping, you know, humanity on both an individual as well as a, a global level, uh, trying to get to those yeah. next stages. And, um, and we'll see, we'll see, uh, uh, how they all go and, um, and, and where humanity will evolve to and, and whether or not, our brain itself will continue to evolve into something different um, that will enable us to see the world in another kind of way or see consciousness in another kind of way or whether uh, we'll just use our technologies to, to push us forward. I, you know, great questions and uh, we'll, we'll just have to see where the future takes us. Yeah, keeping an open mind. Very like important. used to be yeah. one important thing. Yeah. I mean, this to me, uh, I talk about, I wrote a book called Principles of Neurotheology, and I talk about, a, you know, something I call the passion for inquiry, which is to just keep asking questions, to not, you know, to keep, as you said, an open mind, to be aware of our biases. I mean, we all have to have our beliefs. We all have to, you know, we all have to survive and, and make sense out of the world, but to also be open to what the other possibilities are. And, um, you know, again, that even in and of itself is another just incredible question about, you know, how much data do we need to change the way we think? If you're a very, you know, staunch Republican, how much data do you need to become a Democrat or vice versa? Um, you know, uh, how do we how do we think about these things and how do we help everyone kind of you know, work towards a, a greater understanding of themselves and the world around us? And uh, and that, you know, to be uh, throwing my idealistic self, I mean, that's really where I hope all of this takes us. But um, but having that open mind always forcing the more questions and, and, uh, and asking more questions and being aware of our own beliefs and biases, uh, hopefully will take us there. And uh, we just got to keep doing it. And hopefully we, we, we do it together. I think that's uh, another real issue that we've just gotten away from. And, uh, and hopefully we will uh, figure out the ways of, of bringing ourselves together in, in effective ways. Yeah, yeah, we have to be optimistic. Yeah, excellent. This has been great, Andrew. Thanks so much for spending well, time. Well, thank you. Me. Thanks for having me on the program. We appreciate it. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.